that book was written like at the very beginning of the 2000s. So as you were reading, you probably realized tapes? Well, you know, we've moved a little bit beyond that. And actually, I think even as you're reading it, you're going to find that some of the things that she, the way she expresses herself are things that we would now go, ah! because over time, over 25 years, these terms we have learned to associate with things that are very concerning now, but 25 years ago, people weren't as concerned about wording things in those exact same ways because they hadn't kind of morphed into what they've become now. So I'm just kind of letting you know that. And one other thing that I know stuck out to a couple of ladies that I actually had meant to was that she had said, I think it was in our reading maybe last week or the week before, she said that she made the comment about teaching with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And I don't know if that bothered any of you, but I know it bothered a couple of you. <clears throat> but let me comfort you. If you have ever listened to John MacArthur preach, guess what he does? He preaches with the Bible in one hand and not exactly the newspaper in the other. He's not teaching from the newspaper. He is taking the Bible to address what's going on in the culture so that we can think rightly about it. And actually, really, that's kind of what we're going to be talking about even today because we're talking about the discipline of the mind, how we think about things. So anyways, just kind of letting you know some of those little detail things. So let's pray and we'll get going. Father, we do thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the rain. We thank you for the beautiful, wonderful place that you have allowed us to live. And we truly do, or we ought to, count it a privilege and a blessing. And I thank you again that we can join together here, that you are continuing to give us the freedom to do that. Father, please help us not to be complacent in the gifts and blessings and privileges that you give us as believers to, to join together, to study your word, to proclaim it boldly without a true fear of persecution. Help us to use the time that you've given us for your honor and for your glory so that one day when we stand before you, we will not be ashamed because we have not been like the man that took his talent and and hid it in the ground. Father, please help us to use all that you have given us for your glory. And even as we turn our hearts today toward your word, I pray that you would uh, give me the ability by your spirit to teach um, clearly, effectively, and that you would give understanding to those that are here to listen. In your name we pray. Amen. As we consider the topic today of disciplining our minds, I want to begin by asking you a question. Don't be insulted. Do you think is the question. Do you think? Well, you might be thinking, what a ridiculous question. Of course, I think. And actually, Barbara Hughes even said, I'm going to quote her here, she wrote in the book, it's the great scandal of today's church that there are so many Christians without Christian minds. Christians who don't think, let alone think Christianly. This is not a new problem because I have also been reading uh, a book, um, it's actually a biography um, about Elizabeth Elliot and um, 
It's called Being Elizabeth Elliot. So there's two. So this is the second. This biography, Being Elizabeth Elliot, as Elizabeth entered back, so she had gone to Ecuador, and as she came back into the U.S., this was during the time of the early 60s, and she was bemoaning the same dilemma that Barbara Hughes was, was bemoaning as well in the book. Anemic, shallow Christians who simply wanted to say and hear nice platitudes, but no passion to know and love Jesus Christ. That's the, the church Elizabeth Elliot came back into, and she's trying to figure out how am I supposed to address this culture that I now find myself back in. Well, if we look back even further into history, you will remember William Wilberforce and the book that he wrote, which has now been retitled Real Christianity. But remember what he was addressing all those years ago, this nominal Christianity that was weak, that was not addressing the worldliness of the times. Now, 25 years after uh, Barbara Hughes wrote her book, we are still dealing with the same thing because there's nothing new under the sun according to Ecclesiastes, right? And so we're always continuing to deal with the same things. And because we live in whatever culture it is that we live in, we tend to adapt and adopt the culture that we live in. And so we oftentimes don't stop to think about what we're thinking about. And that is very, very dangerous. So I would like to submit to you that one of the reasons we fail to think right thoughts is because we fail to think at all. That may sound like a bit of a shocking statement. If someone asked you if you had thoughts, you would most likely respond in the affirmative. Yes, of course, I think. And I might respond back and say, I know you have thoughts, but do you actually think? So I thought, of course, it's always helpful to define our terms, right? So what does think actually mean? Well, I didn't go to uh, the internet this time. <laughs> I went to Webster's 1828. I felt like that's good and solid biblical definition there. So he actually had listed out nine definitions, and I am only going to read three of them to you. <clears throat> so number five was to muse, to meditate. Number six was to reflect to recollect or to call to mind. And number seven was to consider, to deliberate. So when I ask you, do you think, what I am actually wondering is do you muse? Do you meditate? Do you reflect? Do you consider or deliberate? There's a big difference between just going along with whatever is going along in the culture and actually stopping to consider, is this biblical? Is this right? So why is this important? And we are going to actually jump right onto our outline. So capital A there is Christians are called to think. So because Paul exhorts the believers in Philippi to think, in Philippians 4, I, we need to also do the same thing. And I realize this is a very common passage, and we uh, refer to this very often, and it is tied to anxiety and all these other things. But I'm just going to very briefly remind you about what he's talking about here. So I'm going to read the verse to you. <clears throat> it says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell 
or the King James actually says, think on these things. So what does this word dwell actually mean if we go to the original? It means to consider, to take account, to weigh, to meditate on a thing with a view to obtaining it. So this is very interesting when you think about obtaining those things that we are commanded to be thinking about. So number one on your outline, the Christian is instructed to consider, to meditate, to muse, or think. This is not optional. We don't just think if it's convenient for you. We are commanded to think. According to Proverbs 23, 7, how a person thinks determines who he is and how he lives. So that verse says, for as he thinks within himself, so is he. So our thoughts determine who we are, how we respond to things, what our motives are, all these things. Every Christian must learn to think and learn to think deeply about God, themselves, sin, their motives, obedience, you name it. Christians should be thinking about it. Paul begins his list of things to think about with what? Think on things that are true. As we know, what is the basis of truth? Well, scripture is. I'm not telling you anything right now that you don't already know. I'm just reminding you. Everything that we experience, everything that influences us, every new idea, every message we read, every... So just listen here to what I'm, what I'm saying. These are really important that we catch this. So um, every new idea, like I said, every message, every Instagram post, every social media post, literally everything... We need to learn to measure it against God's word. Not just a fleeting quick thought, but pondering it, considering it, meditating on the truth, evaluating whether the things that pass through our minds are true or not. It is essential to our sanctification, to our ability to function rightly in this world that we take and consider Everything that comes into our mind, every influence, does this line up with the truth of Scripture? Do I know? Can I prove it from the Scripture? That's not something that comes easily. This requires work, time, effort in order to do that. And quite frankly, oftentimes we are so distracted with everything going on in the world and we're just plain lazy because it's a whole lot easier to flip on the TV, to scroll our phones, than it is to measure the things that are influencing us against the truth of God's word. And so we have to realize how serious this really is. So let me ask you this. Did you think this morning? Oh, sorry, this thing keeps falling off my ear. Did you evaluate what you looked at on social media to determine if what you saw was true according to scripture? Did you consider the conversation you had this morning by measuring your words and motives against scripture to determine if it reflected the truth? What about the article you read or the blog post or your teen snarky comment? How about the billboard you saw on your drive in? So even this morning, here it is 9 o'clock in the morning, and we have already 
had lots of different interactions with either people or media or even, like I was saying, even driving in the billboards and things that we see. Are we just taking it for granted? Are we just imbibing it? Or are we stopping to consider, hmm, is that message true? Hmm, what's going on there? How does that measure up to the word of God? See, all day long, every day, this is what we need to be doing. This takes work. It takes time. It takes intentionality. Since having been trained to be a counselor, I have often been considering whether or not things are true. I am so thankful for the counseling training for that reason, because they teach you and train you to evaluate so that you know how to measure everything up to the word of God. Because that's the whole point. When you sit down to counsel somebody, you are helping them identify whether or not the issues that they are having, how they, how they measure up to scripture. And so then what ends up happening? Everything you start to consider and evaluate and wonder, how does this measure up to scripture over and over and over again? And yet, even this morning, Craig and I were talking, and he's been reading this, this apologetics book, and it's actually a testimony of this French man who became a believer who was an atheist. And part of the testimony, I don't need to get into all of that, and you're not even going to know how this all relates and why it matters. But um, anyways, he was... Uh, bemoaning the fact that Americans don't get much vacation time because of the girl he wanted to pursue. She didn't have a lot of vacation time, and she was American. And here in France, they get all this time, like five to seven weeks. And so anyways, Craig and I were talking about it, and I said, you know, honey, like I'm right now studying this, comparing this against the truth of Scripture. So if we take this and think, well, I should be getting seven or eight weeks or whatever it is, a vacation every year, how does that measure up biblically? Like, do you see how it's in the smallest things? And I am not saying vacation is wrong. Rest is necessary, okay? That's not my point. So don't go walk out and say Vaughn hates vacation because it's not true. But, but the point is that when we set our expectations that this is what I should have because other people in the world have that, and then I'm discontent because I don't have that, what has just happened? I have taken the world's way of thinking, and it has become my way of thinking, and now I'm sinning because I can't be like the world. But we do it over and over and over again. So that was all for free. That wasn't on my notes here. <laughs> okay, so evaluating everything. So evaluating our movies. What parts are true according to biblical principles, and what parts were false, wrong in their conclusions or solutions. So when we're thinking through the influences that are coming in, we have to be constantly evaluating them. Is that comment that person made true according to scripture, or is it sinful, false, or wrong? Is that Christian book I'm reading giving instruction according to the truth of scripture? Are the statements that are being made a true reflection of God's character and our responsibility? So one of Webster's definitions of think was to muse. He defines it as it is deep thought, close attention, or contemplation. So did you know that when you add a at the beginning of a word, it changes the word, giving it the opposite meaning. So what happens when you add a as a prefix to the word muse? What do you get? A muse. It's our favorite thing, right? 
Muse means to think or meditate on some subject. The letter A, used as a prefix, renders the word into its negative form. Amuse means to hold the attention of someone, entertain or divert in an enjoyable manner. Amuse then basically inhibits musing. So here's what I mean. If muse is to think, amuse is to not think. Rather, it is to be entertained. We live in a culture that is designed to entertain us, to keep us from thinking. This is not by chance. This is all part of Satan's plan. Entertain us, amuse us. Why? So that we will not think. And what does scripture command us to do? To think. If we don't think, we won't consider our spiritual condition. If we don't think, we won't evaluate our hearts to discover our sin. We won't consider the love of Christ that we, dis that we discussed a couple of weeks ago. We won't anticipate the glory to come when we are in the presence of God. We won't consider the eternal need and the destination of those around us. Can you see the spiritual implications when we are just simply focused on being amused, on being entertained? And what does our culture live for the purpose of? Entertainment. Let me go to the ball game. Let me listen or watch this movie. Let me listen to music. Let me go on vacation. This is what our culture literally, they work so that they can be amused. And what has it done? When we as Christians follow the path of the world, we do not think because we have become complacent at the influence of the world in our lives. To live a life of amusement or entertainment is to live a life with an anemic mind, a mind that hasn't been trained to discern good and evil. So number two on your outline, through discipline, the mature Christian can discern good and evil. So in Hebrews 5.14, it says this, but solid food, that's the rich, deep, theological, doctrinal truths of scripture, is for who? The mature, who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So I'm going to define a couple of the words in that verse <clears throat> because I think it's important for us to really grasp the meaning of what's going on here. So it says, who be, so mature Christians who, because of practice, have their senses trained. Well, what is this word senses? It is the faculty of mind for perceiving, understanding, and, ju and judging. So the mature Christian, because of practice, which means habits, have their senses, their mind trained. Okay, so now I'm going to give you another definition, that word train. It is gumnazo, which is the same word that we get the word gymnasium from, right? So to work out, to exercise, to train. And that is the same word that is used in 1 Timothy 4.7 when it says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. So essentially what we are being told here in Hebrews is that our minds need to be disciplined to discern good and evil. So here's what we need to ask ourselves. Have we trained or disciplined our minds to be able to discern good and evil. 
Have we trained our minds to evaluate our thoughts to determine if they are good or evil, if they are holy or sinful, if they are motivated by a desire to please God or to please self? There are several things that influence our thoughts. So I'm just going to name just a few of them. We have desire, and that can be either good or bad. We have experience that influences our mind and our thoughts. And just influences around us, people, uh, messages on billboards, TV, advertisements, social media, all kinds of influence. So how often do you discipline your mind to consider whether your thoughts are aligned with the truth of Scripture? If you are not doing that regularly, if you cannot discern good and evil, what do we learn from our verse in Hebrews? This is kind of pointed, but you evaluate your own heart. That means you're not mature. You're not a mature Christian. Because the mature Christian has put habits into their life so that they have been disciplined in their minds so that they can discern good and evil. I tell you what, if you're going to go to a counselor, you are hoping that they can discern good and evil. Because if they can't, you're going to get some really bad counseling. But that's not just for some counselor person. Counselors are not any more important than anybody else. That's what we all need to be doing. We all need to have the capability of counseling one another. So consider this, when we fail to evaluate our desires or when we misinterpret our experiences, it leads to wrong conclusions. Additionally, when we accept the idea or opinions of others without considering, contemplating or thinking, how they came to their conclusions, their ideas, their opinions, we can be easily led astray into wrong thinking. By simply accepting their ideas and opinions without thinking about what influenced their thoughts and conclusions, we open ourselves up to the possibility of wrong thinking. Essentially, when we fail to discipline our minds to think biblically, our minds naturally veer toward fleshly thinking, worldly thinking, or sinful thinking. Do you, are you starting to see the magnitude of the seriousness of this thing? Our minds naturally go toward the flesh. We have to fight against it. That's why, that's why we're told in Scripture that there's a war going on between the flesh and the spirit all the time. And we have to engage our mind, discipline our mind, so that we can discern between good and evil. So I was reflecting back over a situation that happened in my early adult years, just to give an example to you. And I remembered, um, well, there was several areas in my life, especially as a young person. And I grew up in a Christian home on the mission field where I heard teaching from the Bible all the time. And yet... I had not studied and thought and considered. And so basically what happened as a young person is I was just repeating the Christianese that I had heard my whole life. It hadn't really penetrated my heart so that I understood it. I mean, I was a believer, so I'm not saying that I, I didn't understand in the sense of being an unbeliever, but I was immature according to the, the definition of Hebrews. I didn't know how to discern good and evil. I remember having a conversation probably about 25 years ago with a couple that was about our age, Craig and I, my age at the time, 
The question came up, does God cause or allow events, circumstances, or situations? Maybe you've had a conversation like that at some point in your past. This was in reference ultimately to what we believe about God's sovereign work in the world. Does God cause the events and circumstances that occur in our lives? Or does he step back and allow events to transpire as they will? So we spent a couple of hours discussing this topic, and I loved it. I thought it was so great. I enjoyed the debate, and present. And I'm not a debater, just to let you know. I don't know why I like this conversation so much. But anyways, I did at the time. <clears throat> I enjoyed being able to present my opinion. I thought I knew what I was talking about. But sadly, nothing I said in the conversation and none of the thoughts that inspired my words were based on my own study or consideration of the facts. I was simply reiterating the thoughts and considerations of others I had heard discuss the topic. Years later, when I reflected on that conversation, I realized the absolute futility of the conversation. On my part, the majority of the conversation was simply repeating my unexplored, unstudied theology. Ideas and opinions I had heard other people assert, but had never spent time thinking deeply about. My arguments and examples were not based on specific verses, nor were they inspired by scriptural principles I had considered, mused on, meditated on. I was not dwelling on the truth of scripture to come to my conclusion. The problem was that I had never truly engaged my own mind to actually think about the topic through research study. I remember being staunch in my position. And yet, there was absolutely no grounds for my argument because I had not previously engaged my mind to think about it. What was my proof for the position I held? What was my defense? What research supported my argument? I was simply repeating the ideas, opinions, and conclusions I had heard others explain. And guess what? Now, 25 years later, after disciplining my mind to consider these things, I don't even agree with my younger self. <laughs> but how often, and I really speak to you younger gals that are here today, don't just simply repeat the things that you hear your parents or your Sunday school teacher or Chris say. You have to know the word because you have studied it. You have found it to be sufficient in your own life. If all you're doing is repeating what somebody else has told you, you have not stopped to think. And you're not a mature believer because maturity requires time and thought and effort so that you can discern good and evil. Clearly, you see the problem. I was arguing for a position of which I had no true knowledge. I was defending something which I'd never truly considered or thoroughly engaged my mind deeply or broadly. And I failed to look to scripture for truth and ultimate authority. My argument was simply and shallowly based on my exposure to other people's knowledge, which may or may not have been accurate according to scripture. And I think we need to consider all the various influences, and I would say specifically probably, and I mean, I think we're very much influenced by the world as well, but sometimes you know how the world gets into the church? It gets in through other Christians who are not thinking, and we take what they say instead of comparing it to the word of God. What blogs do you read? What podcasts do you listen to? Do you know 
that these things line up accurately according to the word of God. So number three, guard against being conformed to the world. And again, another verse we're very familiar with, Romans 12, 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So, again, we're going to look at our our words here to define our terms. And I think you've probably heard this before, but I'm just going to be reminding you here. So this word, conform, what does it mean? It means to conform or pattern oneself to somebody else. Conform yourself, be pressed into the mold or the pattern of someone else. And especially the mind and the character. So John MacArthur helps us. He says in his commentary, this refers to an outward expression that does not reflect what is within. It is used of masquerading or putting on an act. So what happens when we as believers act like the world, we are acting on the outside like the world, but that's not a true representation because as a believer, we've been given a new nature. We have the Holy Spirit that indwells us, and so we need to be living according to the pattern of Scripture based on the power that we're given by the Holy Spirit. We as believers are not to be conformed to worldly thinking because it does not reflect who we are in Christ. We are children of the Most High God. We have been redeemed, and as such, our minds must not reflect the mind of those in the world. Our minds and thoughts should reflect that of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is informed by his world, by his word, not worldly thinking, that is influenced ultimately by Satan, who is what? A liar, a murderer, and the enemy of our souls. But when we take on worldly thinking, we are aligning ourselves with our enemy who wants to kill and destroy us. Why would we do that? Because we are distracted, because we don't realize the seriousness of the situation, because we're like the, pot, the frog in the pot, and as the culture just becomes more and more godless, as it moves further and further from the Judeo-Christian principles that it was founded on, we don't really oftentimes pay attention. And I, I, I'm, I feel like I'm being accusatory. I'm not meaning to be that way. But I know how I wrestle in my own heart with these things. And though I strive and strive, it's like this morning talking about the vacation thing, realizing, okay, let's measure everything. What am I being influenced by? So often... Because we fail to think or to muse or to meditate, our thoughts are conformed to the world's way of thinking. How do we keep our minds and character from being conformed by the world? We, of course, know what does the verse tell us. We need to renew our minds. So John MacArthur says this, which I think is helpful as well. It is in the mind that our new nature and our new humanness are intermixed. It is in the mind that we make choices as to whether we will express our new nature and holiness or allow our fleshly humanness to act in unholiness. We determine that in our mind. What are we going to do? So renewing means a renewal or a renovation, a complete change for the better. That's what we're striving for in our mind is this renewal. 
This is accomplished when we exercise our mind to think on the truth of Scripture. It is accomplished as we discipline our minds to discern good and evil. Spiritual stability and spiritual maturity is accomplished as we dwell on the Word of God and measure every influence in our lives against it. And that requires discipline. It won't happen apart from time, energy, and intentionality, which are all, of course, aspects, as we know, of discipline. So when we simply imbibe and accept the influence around us, whatever it is, we allow ourselves to be conformed to the world. How much time and effort do you spend truly thinking? How much time do you spend renewing your mind, dwelling on what is true, as Paul told us in Philippians? What things have you assumed are true or are biblical that actually aren't, kind of like my position that I had in that early conversation? Do you have certain ways that you live that make you feel more godly than others when scripture doesn't specifically address it? We can get ourselves in a whole lot of hot water because of how we feel about our spirituality and not thinking about our spirituality. Have you picked up ideas from sources who promote ideas that may be worldly? But because you have not engaged your mind in biblical study, meditation, you are unaware that it is not biblical. Do you evaluate every Instagram post, every influencer, every blog post or podcast against the word of God, both broadly and deeply? Are the messages true? Are the messages based on a proper biblical priority. This is why being in a church, a good church, a Bible teaching, God-fearing church is so important because it helps to inform our minds. That was one of the issues that Elizabeth Elliot had as she came back. She was not in a good church and she did not have the good, solid, deep doctrinal teaching of the word to, to help her, to support her, to encourage her. And so in some ways, she was a little bit, at least the section of the book I'm on right now, she was a bit of a, of a, a loner in that because she didn't have the support of a good church. But even as we think about these things, here is one aspect for you mommies to be thinking about. And it does get complicated when we are moms because we have to think about not only the influences and, and ways we are thinking unbiblically, but we have to think about how our children are also thinking unbiblically. When you have children, you have to put forth even more effort because you are not only considering the ways that you are being conformed to the world, but you need to also consider how your children are being conformed to the world. And I realize that unbelieving children do not have the power of the Holy Spirit to discern spiritual things, but that doesn't mean you just give them over to the worldly mind. You have the duty to constantly be evaluating what is influencing them and then helping them understand why it is good or evil based on Scripture. I remember when our kids were young, we were very careful about everything that they watched, and that kind of came over time. Like, we started out pretty, pretty, you know, I don't know, easygoing when they were real little, and then over time, we got more and more and more careful. Craig and I carefully evaluated what they watched on TV, 
We evaluated the messages in the movies they watched and the things that were influencing them. Over time, we eliminated almost all romance-type movies because we didn't want our kids having a worldly view of male and female relationships or of marriage. If their main source of influence for romance relationships was from the God-hating, family-destroying machine called Hollywood, we realized they would adopt that way of thinking rather than what Scripture taught. And yes, that even included Disney princess movies, especially Disney princess movies, because three-year-olds and five-year-olds, guess what they want to be more than anything else in the world? They want to be a princess. Because what happens when you're a princess in Disney? The whole world revolves around you. Oh, don't we all want to be a princess at heart? No, we don't. Because if we were a princess, we are not bowing to the king as we ought to be. The world does not revolve around us. What are the things that are influencing us? What are the things that are influencing our children? So why is this so difficult? Why do we struggle to think, to deeply consider whether or not the things that influence our minds are worldly or biblical? Why is it so hard to discipline our minds for the purpose of godliness? And I do want you to turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. And I realize this is, again, I, I think you're probably noticing here, I'm not going to any new passages of Scripture today. I am just reminding you of what you already know. Uh, and that's kind of what this is right here as well. It's a passage we often, often go to when we think about spiritual warfare and our thoughts. So 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, it says this, For we walk in the flesh, so though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. So he's talking here about meaning physically. So though we walk in our physical bodies in the actual earth, we do not war according to physical, temporal, worldly things. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They're not physical, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This is a very, very powerful passage here, and I wish I had time to explain and go through the whole thing because it's very rich. But because I don't have time, I'm going to point you to John MacArthur. Um, he has a fantastic sermon, and all you have to do is go on um, either to the website or the app and look up 2 Corinthians uh, 10, 3 through 6, actually, and, and listen to it. I have listened to that multiple times over the last several weeks just because I want to fully be able to understand this so that I can explain it well to you guys as well, but so that I'm not just hearing it and forgetting it, but so that my heart and my life is changed as a result of the truths. And so I'm going to give you just a smidge of some of that here this morning, and I will even give you a couple of quotes from that, that sermon was so critical to our um, desire to discipline our minds for the purpose of godliness. So number one, the battle is spiritual. We are in a spiritual battle. The whole life of the Christian is a spiritual battle against sin and against everything that stands in opposition to God and his will. But as we fight this battle, we can't do it with fleshly weapons. We cannot fight with our own human capabilities because our battle is not fought in the physical realm. Our minds must be disciplined to think spiritually because our battle for the mind is spiritual. And I want to give you just like a very brief example of this. 
So thinking about missions and when people want to go to other countries and they want to be a missionary, a lot of times what has happened, or I shouldn't say a lot of times, but, well, I think it is a lot of times, but anyways, oftentimes what can happen is people with, with a desire to go out, they think, well, we're going to go out and we're going to do all this humanitarian stuff. And so they, they dig wells, they, they help people medically, they do all this physical stuff. And those are essentially the weapons of our physical, temporal, worldly world that we live in. Those are good and nice things to do, but they have no power against the lostness that people in these other countries find themselves in. They have no power to save from sin. It is only the word of God that will do that, that will save us from our sin. And that's essentially just to help you kind of connect what that looks like, the difference between the two. It has to be the truth of God's word. We cannot fight with our own human capabilities because our battle is not fought in the physical realm. Our minds must be disciplined to think spiritually because our battle for the mind is spiritual. And Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. The fact that unbelievers do not understand the gospel is because Satan has blinded their understanding. Their ability to understand is entirely spiritual. And so we can't think that our reasoning, that our, our little clever ways of doing things or saying things, or especially seeker-sensitive churches where you just want to get people in the door and make them comfortable, that is not going to save anybody's soul. It is only the truth of God's word that will save the soul. And so when we think about the, the mind of the unbeliever that is blinded, the only thing we have is the word of God divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses? I'm going to explain to you what fortresses is. But before we do that, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4 says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And John MacArthur, he says this, The God of this age is the one who controls the thoughts, the ideas. Now listen to his list here. So the God of this age, Satan, we'll see that in a minute, who controls the thoughts, the ideas, the opinions, the ideals, the maxims, the hopes, the impulses, the aims, the goals, the views, current in the world. The one who reigns in the world's philosophies, in the world's psychologies, in the world's education, in the world's commerce, in the world's labors, in the world's sociology, in every enterprise, he is the monarch. Satan is who he's referring to here. Everything that we see, we can't afford to be thinking like that. So who is the God of this world? Well, according to 1 John 5.19 and many other verses, but I'll just give you this one. It says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And who is the evil one? We know to be Satan. And then MacArthur goes on to explain the meaning of the word mind. So their minds have been blinded. It literally means their ability to reason. The unbeliever does not have the ability to reason because Satan has blinded the minds of their, their hearts. 
Unregenerate people can't think. They can't reason. The mind of the unbelieving person cannot reason because it has been supernaturally blinded by Satan. Thus, the spiritual battle for the mind must be fought using divinely powerful weapons. We cannot open the eyes of the unbeliever's mind apart from the supernatural power of God. Even the believers, that's us, need the supernatural power of God to help us discern between good and evil. We as Christians will not think rightly ourselves if we do not possess divinely powerful weapons provided to us by God. We are no match for the enemy of our souls. But our enemy, this this is where the hope is, but our enemy is no match for the powerful, supernatural weapon that God provides. Because when Satan came to Jesus to tempt him in the wilderness during the 40 days, what did Jesus use? He didn't use some crazy miracle or something like that. He used the word of God. That is the same word of God that we have accessible to us. So number two, the weapon is the word of God. Our spiritual weapon for this battle is, as we said, the word of God. Ephesians 6, 17 says, and take the sword of the spirit. Remember, that is talking about the armor, um, the spiritual armor. And the one weapon that we are given as Christians is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So this is why we need to study the word of God. I know we keep saying this over and over again. You got to study it. You got to know it. You got to memorize it. You got to meditate on it. But this is where our hope is. We are never going to be able to function rightly in this world if we do not understand this and if we are not taking the time to do it. This is why you must know it, understand it, rightly interpret it, memorize it, meditate on it, and obey it. It is your only offensive weapon in the spiritual battle for your mind, in the spiritual battle for your thoughts. If you do not know scripture, then you have no defense. You have no offense. If it does not guide you, you are without a weapon with which to fight. Your ability to discern good and evil will be weak. It will be feeble and totally inadequate to the task we have been called as believers. We won't be able to recognize what is true and right or even edifying. Even in our day-to-day interactions with other people, if our minds have not been disciplined and trained to discern good and evil, even my conversation with my husband is going to not necessarily be edifying because I don't know if what I'm saying pleases the Lord or doesn't please the Lord. If you understand scripture wrongly, you will live it out wrongly. If you misunderstand scripture, you will not live in a manner worthy of the calling in which you are called. You will not be pleasing to the Lord in everything, and you will not be an example to others that they can follow. And all of this, of course, requires disciplining our minds, which is what our chapter has been about this week. So number three, scripture is supernaturally powerful to destroy fortresses or worldly thinking. So looking at, um, if you look at your passage again there, um, it says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, so they're not physical, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. So what does that mean? What is a fortress? And, and how, does that, how does that play into the mind? Like it seems a little vague. 
So here's what is being said. Scripture is divinely or supernaturally powerful for destroying worldly thinking. That's what a fortress is. is Ultimately, it's worldly thinking. So first of all, let's look again. We're going to look at our definition. So first of all, let's look at destruction. So it's it's divinely powerful for the destruction. And that means what you would think it means. Demolition. Um, But really specifically, the pulling down. Really get that, that picture in your mind. The destruction of fortresses, the pulling down of fortresses. And think about a fortress, what that looks like. Oftentimes it is um, those big, huge, cement, thick rock walls that protect a city um, or a kingdom or something. So these divinely powerful weapons are strong enough to destroy these fortresses. So then what is a fortress? It is, this is the definition, anything on which one relies, the arguments and reasonings by which a disputant endeavors to fortify his opinion. So um, I'm going to give you John MacArthur's explanation and definition because I think it's really helpful. But let me explain it this way. So a fortress is worldly thinking. This is not mildly harmful. Okay, It's not like we can say, oh, that's too bad. I stub my toe. It's not like that. It's like a knife in the heart. It's very, very serious. Sometimes we tend to have the idea that worldly thinking is not right, but it's not really that bad. So I'm here to tell you it's deadly. That's the whole point. Fortresses are all the various secular reasoning that unbelievers use to defend their position against God. It is designed by Satan to keep people imprisoned in false thinking so that they will not be saved. This is how Satan blinds the minds of the unbelieving. It includes things like evolution, Mormonism, Catholicism, Buddhism, but it also encompasses whatever they rely on to make life worth living, to make life better, to give life purpose, meaning, value, etc., and to give them hope in the afterlife. All these wrong ways of thinking that are raised up against the knowledge of God, as the next verse tells us. John MacArthur says this, all spiritual warfare is aimed at smashing the fortresses of human reasoning against God. This is very important to understand. In some cases, it's religious, like what I already said, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, Roman Catholicism, Hinduism, Buddhism, animism, forms of religion all over the world, liberal Christianity. These are all fortresses, ideological fortresses set up against the true knowledge of God. On the other hand, it can be non-religious. It can be forms of naturalistic, humanistic, evolutionary philosophy and psychology, unquote. It's quite a quote. But it helps us to grasp what's really going on here. So, We've kind of been building up to this point here so that you realize how important this is. When we say discipline the mind, it's not a casual thing. No, because people are dying and going to hell because they are entrenched. They are held captive in these fortresses that Satan has blinded their minds. And we cannot afford to think like the unbeliever because what good are we to the unbeliever if we think like them? All of these systems of thinking have been raised up against God, guided by the ruler of this world to deceive everyone. 
The only thing that can destroy these fortresses of thought is the word of God, like a trebuchet that hurls those massive boulders penetrating stone fortifications. Scripture penetrates the fortresses of every system of wrong thinking, shining light in darkness and bringing truth where only lies prevail. We should know the word of God inside and outside because it is our only defense against these things and it is our only offense to tear them down. Remember what it means, the pulling down. The word of God is what we use to pull down these strongholds, these fortresses, these wrong ways of thinking. So here, well, for sake of time, I'm going to keep moving. So our responsibility is, is see there. So number one, we need to destroy these speculations and lofty things raised up against the knowledge of God. So, okay, now we had um, in the previous, let me scroll back up here real quick. Um, we had destruction, which was used earlier. So we have for the destruction of fortresses. Now look at verse 5. It says, we are destroying. So in verse 4, where it says destruction of fortresses, that is the noun. When we get to we are destroying, that is the verb form of the same word, in case that matters to you. So what does it mean? It means to pull down. Again, that's what it's talking about. We are to destroy these speculations and lofty things. We are to pull them down, to demolish them. So what are speculations and lofty things? Speculations is a reasoning such as is hostile to the Christian faith. And what is the lofty thing? Everything elevated in pride against God. So MacArthur says this again to give us a little bit more understanding here. He says, Scripture indicates right here that our war is for the destruction of fortresses. Further, they are defined in this way. So looking back to verse 5, take the word chi translated and. Okay, so I want to help you to follow where I'm going here because it says we're destroying speculations and every lofty thing so that word and can also be translated as even so that's what he's saying here so he's saying speculations basically lofty things then describe speculations and they both describe what a fortress is so it can also mean even which means it's a further explanation of the same thing a better way to translate it we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. That's what a speculation is. He defines it right there. Every concept, every opinion, every reason, every philosophy, every theory, every ideology, every thought that is against God, that's a fortress, unquote. He likes to give long explanations. But I found it so helpful as he just gives one word description after the next. Wow, 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 look at all these things. Am I really truly considering what a fortress is and am I seeking to destroy it? In my own mind, in my own life, am I destroying wrong ways of thinking, ways of thinking that mirror the world? So how do we destroy them? By countering them with the truth from the word of God. We must renew our minds with the truth of God's word. So number two, 
We need to bring our thoughts under control of the obedience to Christ. So this is the part of the verse that maybe we say a whole bunch, right? We need to take our thoughts captive. So what does that actually mean when we say that? Oh, take our thoughts captive. Well, what it means is to bring under control. And what's the rest of the, what's the, rest of the verse? To the obedience of Christ, right? Yes, that's what we are seeking to do. We are to bring our thoughts under the control of the word of God for the purpose of obeying Jesus Christ. To accomplish this, it requires discipline. We must be willing to turn off the TV, to set the phone and everything associated with it, to set it aside, turn off Spotify, and think evaluate your priority. If somebody looked at your life, this was always so convicting to me when my kids were little, when, when um, I don't know, somebody presented this question at one point. If your children asked you, um, excuse me, if you asked your children, somebody else asked your children, what would they say is the most important thing in your life? What would they say? Would they say that it is a pursuit of Jesus Christ and is a desire to follow him? Maybe it's not your children because your children don't live with you anymore like mine don't anymore. What would my husband say? What is the most important thing? Am I always trying to get just a couple minutes more for myself? Am I always trying to get just that other little episode of that show in? Am I always just trying to get another post on Instagram? What is it that I'm always trying to get through everything I have to do so I can get to that? It should be the word of God. It should be that my life would be honoring to the word of God. Am I always fighting for those extra moments so that I might know who God is through his word? So evaluate your priorities. Do they reflect the mind of Christ? How do you know if they reflect the mind of Christ? Do you know if they reflect the mind of Christ? Could your priorities be improved? Do they need to be rearranged? How do you know? Consider an area of sin in your life. What wrong thinking needs to be brought under the control of Scripture so that you can be obedient to Christ? Are there things in your life that you need to eliminate in order to gain time to think? Do you need to go to bed earlier so you can get up earlier to have time when the house is still and the chatter of little voices doesn't distract you? The mature Christian is able to discern good and evil because he has formed habits that have helped him to discipline his mind. And remember, what mind is, is the ability to reason. If we do not discipline our minds to reason, to think, we will not be able to discern good and evil, and we will ultimately be immature believers. And really, it doesn't matter how mature we are. We continue to press on and to press on because there's always more maturity. There's always more to grasp in the truths of Scripture. And as we compare it to our lives, we compare our lives to it and then seek to live according to it. If we are not able to discern good and evil, our flesh will guide our thoughts and we will fail to be obedient to Christ. So I know we had a lot of interruptions as we were getting started here this morning, but I hope you've been able to to really feel the weight of this this morning. It is very, very serious. 
We need to discipline our minds to think so that we can discern in our own lives good and evil, and then also so that we can then help others think rightly as well. The Lord gives us all kinds of opportunities to influence other people. Are we influencing them rightly, pointing them to Christ? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you so much for your beautiful and wonderful word that illumines our minds, that convicts our hearts, that gives us hope, that, that encourages us, that comforts us. Lord, I pray that we would be serious about disciplining our minds to think so that more and more we are able to discern what is right and what is wrong, what is according to your word and what is worldly. Lord, please change our hearts, grow us and mature us so that you would be honored and glorified in our lives. In your name we pray, amen.